Well, good morning. I'm Julie Coleman. I'm a part of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. And um, we're finishing up a two-part series. Can you call it a series if it only has two parts? I'm not sure. But I'm choosing to do so. Anyway, it's a two-part series on um, all we were meant to be in, in Christ and what God created us for. Last week, we were looking at um, the fact that we were created in God's image and that we were created to reflect God's glory. Um, and but our ability to do that was marred by sin. So God fixed the problem. He erased the record, he washed us clean, and he qualified us for service. And God continues to work in us, even though the, the uh, big part is done, but he's uh, making us increasingly better reflectors of his glory as time goes on. And our worth, we finally said, was determined by how much God paid for us, the price that God paid, just like a house on a real estate market. How much are people willing to pay for it? That's how much it's worth. And God paid the precious blood of his only son, a high price. And that's how much we are worth to God. So seeing ourselves through God's eyes in those terms uh, is monumental in having a correct sense of identity. So today in this final section, if we are created to reflect the glory of God, then we have to figure out what reflecting God's glory looks like in practical terms. Sounds like a big job, don't you think? And so we're going to be looking at that this morning. So in this session, we're going to be looking at how the Bible describes a proper, proper reflection. We're going to answer two questions. The first question is, how do we reflect God? How are we supposed to reveal him to the world? And the answer, short answer is, we're messengers. And the second question is, what should that reflection look like in his messengers? Um, what does he want our reflection to reveal about him? There's a whole lot of stuff we could tell about God. Well, what are we supposed to be revealing? So we need to look at the content of that message that we're commissioned to bring to the world. So we're going to start by looking at what it means to reflect God, what it means to be a witness for Jesus. Oh, no, she said the W word. <laughs> witness. Anybody break out into a cold sweat? little twitch in your eye or something, right? Uh, witness is kind of a scary word to most of us uh, because it has so many ways that we could go wrong. Um, but what I'm going to show you this morning, I think is going to free you up from all of that, all of that fear in sharing Christ with people because it's, it's, I don't think it's what we think it is. And I think we're going to be looking at that this morning. And I hope that rather than burden you this morning, I'm going to get you excited about what you can do to reveal God to the world. So, like I said, the short answer to the first question, how do we reflect God? We are to be his witnesses. And in Acts 1.8, just before Jesus ascended back into heaven, he had his disciples around him, and this is what he told them. You shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Well, what does that mean, a witness? <clears throat> a definition of a witness is somebody who gives testimony to what he has seen personally, seen or heard. You know, in court, if somebody's telling about something third-hand, what do they call that? Hearsay, Hearsay. right, exactly. <laughs> Crickets chirping. Okay. <laughs> so in court, you can only testify to what you have personally experienced. And that's what a witness is. Um, someone who has personally experienced God in their lives. There are really two ways to testify. 
to reflect God's glory in the, wor- in the world. The first is with our words. That's the one we always think of. Peter said, we should always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you. So you're, you're, you're giving an answer, verbal answer, to the hope that you have within you. Uh, Paul gives a beautiful example of testifying to personal experience. Um, it's found in Acts 26, and, and, and verses 9 to 23, and it's a testimony to King Agrippa that he's been brought before. And so this is what he tells him. I was formerly a persecutor of Christians. I was, you know, going after them with a vengeance. And on my way to Damascus, a bright light shone around me. I heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he commissioned me, it was Jesus, he commissioned me to be a witness to the Gentiles. So I began declaring to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God. That's Paul's testimony, in a nutshell. There's a lot of other great details. It's a really great passage to read. Um, but that's the gist of it. A verbal testimony is just telling what happened to you. It's very simple. The second way is not in words, but in demonstrating the impact of the experience on us. In other words, we witness with our lives. And we live as we're living in response to what God has given us. And it's really a very effective way to testify. Jesus told his disciples, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. See your good works, glorify God. And that's, that's giving um, God the glory. A personal testimony is a really powerful thing. I was teaching at a um, church up in Westminster a few years ago. I was doing, they had a great big, uh, event Christmas tea, and they invited a lot of people who hadn't heard the gospel before to come, women, um, to this event. And I was teaching on, I think it was, um, I, don't, I don't remember, something about light, light of the world or something. Anyway, I'm sure it was very good. But anyway, at the end of the message, they brought me this lady who um, was actually raised Mormon, and she was sobbing her eyes out. Always a little scary to say how that, and they brought her to me and said, Julie, can you talk to her? Um, okay. So, you know, I'm not a counselor, I'm, you know, but I know, I know God, and I can share that, and I can love her. So that's what I did. I had her. We, we ended up in the stairwell, sitting on the stairs, because um, they were starting to rip apart the whole place that, you know, the tables and chairs and everything. It was pretty loud, and we were in the way. So we went in the stairway, and she said to me, she explained to me that she'd been raised Mormon and um, that she, her, her marriage was in the process of breaking up and her whole life was falling apart and she's got this little fifth grade son and apparently me, having been a fifth grade teacher, that's something that spoke to her. God just does wonderful things with little details, doesn't he? But anyway, she said to me, I just need to know one thing from you. How do you know this is true? <laughs> um, I was in seminary at the time and I'll tell you, I thought that a lot. I asked that question a lot because I was dedicating my life to preaching God's word, going to seminary, investing a lot of money and time. I'd quit my career, and I just thought, you know, if, if, uh, how do I know this is true? How do I know I'm not wasting my time? Have you ever thought that? Come on. You've thought it. We've all thought it. So I had to come up with a good answer for her, and I said, you know what? That is a great question. I said, let me tell you personally what worked, you know, what really made a difference for me. I said, it's in the changed lives. 
I said, you look at people in the Bible. Start with the disciples. The disciples were someone that, that were, they were afraid. When Jesus was hung on the cross, they scattered. They ended up in the upper room, doors locked, probably hiding under tables, scared to death of what was about to happen to them um, because Jesus had been arrested and they were next in line. Um, and they were afraid. But after they saw Jesus resurrected from the grave they, and they received the Holy Spirit, they went out into the streets preaching to anybody that would listen to them. Willing to, and they ended up willing to die for it. I said, something happened there. Life-changing things happened to them. And, that, and you can see the results of that in their lives. Then I talked to her about Paul. Paul was a guy who was running around murdering Christians. He thought they were the worst thing ever to have even happened on this planet. And now he's preaching the gospel. Something happened there. Something changed Paul. And I said, you know, I can look at other people's lives and I can tell you about my own. Without Christ, I know that I would be hopeless and a mess. But with him, he's given me everything I need. I said, you know what? It's that. That's what makes me believe that we're on the right track. And I'm happy to tell you that um, she did end up, I suggested to her that she go find out more. And so the next day she was there in church um, at that church. They, you know, they, they wrote and told me that she had come back. And six months later, she wrote me an email and said, I just want to let you know my son and I are getting baptized this morning. Personal testimony is a powerful thing. And, 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 uh, and, and people living out their lives, just being able to see that transformation, powerful. So we're to live out our relationship with Christ in a way that they're asking, why are you different? And we earn the right often to testify with those with love by demonstrating God in us first. It's not preaching at others. It's not preaching at them, trying to convict them of anything. Just tell them what happened to you. I was this, and now I'm this. And God made all the difference. That's your testimony. He forgave me when I was a mess. He reached out. He saved me. I didn't deserve it. He did it. Because they can't argue with your personal experience. Um, you don't have to be a theologian to be a witness. Just tell him what he did for you. And tell them. And he wants to do the same for you. Remember, it's not our job to convict anybody. We think it is sometimes, but it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. Jesus told his disciples, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. We think it's up to us, but we're never going to argue someone into the kingdom of God. Never. Our job is to get the truth out there and then let the Holy Spirit do his work in people's hearts. We don't have to preach. Instead, we should have humility and uh, compassion flavor our testimony because those characteristics really do reflect the Jesus that's in you. So that brings us to our second question then. What is the glory of God that we were created to reflect? What are we reflecting? Well, last week we defined the glory of God as the visible manifestation of the presence or character of God. The visible, something people can see, manifestation, 
of the presence or character of God. So how do we make God visible to other people? We reflect what he is to us. What question, what, what thing do you hear about the church from unbelievers most? What's the accusation? Hypocrites. Judgy. They're judging and there's hypocrisy there. They don't, they don't even live out what they want to be. Well, I'm always intimidated by that because I am far from perfect. And any of us being put under a microscope, we wouldn't get very far, would we? We're not perfect people. It's kind of why Jesus died for us, right? Um, I was afraid to talk about God for a long time with people because I was afraid that they would be um, know that what I was was not very consistent. And they would find the gaps in what I claimed Christ did for me and then what I was, what I was in reality. And that they would then, it would ruin it, and they would disregard God because of me. You ever have that fear? And when I was little, I'd hear my mom talk about people that would do sinful things like going to the movies or dancing. And she would say, that's not a good witness. And my mom wasn't alone. The whole church felt that way. Many people hold the idea that God is looking for a few good men or women. We must be and remain ideal citizens in the kingdom if we are going to be a good witness, right? And if we don't, we'll just be branded as hypocrites and people will write off God in the process of hearing our message. So what is a good witness anyway? Is it someone who leads an exemplary life, has a spotless reputation? If that's how we think of being a witness, what really are we being a witness to? that Jesus made us into a good person? That's not the gospel. I remember I dated this guy a long time ago when I was in high school. Not as cute as Steve. But anyway, they, we, he was not a Christian. And we were, uh, you know, we talked about religion a lot because I wanted to convert him, basically. And so, but one night we sat down, I really laid out the gospel in the most simple terms that I could how Jesus had died for him, and you know he couldn't do it on his own, and this and that. And, and I got through the whole gospel message, and he said to me, well, you know, I, it's interesting, Julie. You know, and he, he was raised to be a good Catholic. He believed in a lot of those things. But he said, I just, I'm not ready. I've got too many things I have to give up. I'm not, I'm, you know, he was a big party guy. He was in a frat house in, in uh, college. And he said, I, I, I just have too many things, too much life to live before I give that up. He just wasn't up to becoming the, to the, the task of becoming a Christian. Can you see how far removed from the gospel that this ideas, guys of ideity, uh, excuse me, this guy's idea of Christianity was? Our relationship with God is always, always based on grace. We're righteous because we wear Christ's righteousness. It's not us. When we start worrying about our performance. We echo that friend's, my friend's idea of never being up to the task of being a Christian. And somehow, the witness, the content of our message, it has to contain the grace that God's offering. So I want to point you today to the story of Peter, disciple of Christ, one of the inner three, uh, dedicated to the Lord, loved him with all his heart. When Jesus was arrested and taken 
um, to the home of the high priest for a trial. Peter followed. He was the only disciple that followed. And he stayed in the courtyard to hear Jesus' fate. And three different times people asked him if he knew or even if he was with Jesus. And three times he answered with a resounding no. Right? And that was a serious betrayal. Because Jesus had warned about this. In Matthew 10, 20, uh, 32 to 33, he said, Everyone who cast confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Peter's intention was to be the one guy who did not deny Christ. He told Jesus, even if everyone else denies you, I would never deny you. But in his moment of truth, when people asked him, he demonstrated feet of clay. So you would think that would be the end of Peter because he blew it. But Jesus brought redemption and life out of the ashes of Peter's failure. Peter and six of his friends returned to Galilee after Jesus was raised from the dead, as, and the angel had instructed them to wait for Jesus there. So what did they do while they were in Galilee? Well, they came out of a fishing profession, a profession, that's right. Um, and and, and what did they do? They got in the boat and they went fishing. Well, I often wonder why. Was it for fun? I don't know, because it was their livelihood. I'm not sure how much love they had for it, but um, they went fishing and they didn't catch anything. And then someone calls them to the shore, tells them to put the net on the other side of the boat, which they do. And of course, the whole thing is loaded with fish. And John realizes, looking on the shore and seeing the boatload of fish and the miracle that had just happened, he realizes it's Jesus. So the disciples hurry into shore, and they are uh, there, and Jesus suggests that they have a, a fish breakfast, and so he tells them to bring some fish out of the water. Um, and so uh, they, they, they end up with a breakfast of grilled fish, and after the breakfast is over, Jesus takes Peter aside. And so we want to just look at a few, um, a few verses here in the end of that passage of John 21. It says, So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Well, who were these? The disciples? In a verse earlier, while all the disciples are already on the shore, it says Peter was still in the water. In Jesus' request, he went up, and drew the net to land. Well, you don't go up into the water. You go down into the water. So he was in the water, and he went up. So he was out fooling with the fishes. My theory is he was a little bit worried about seeing Christ for the first time. You know, or at least uh, meeting his eyes, everybody, you know, knowing exactly what had happened there in that courtyard. Um, so we can't know for sure. The scripture isn't super clear, so there's a little conjecture there. But I really think that Peter was counting the fish because John tells us there were 153 fish. <laughs> now, so, you know, maybe did he think at this point his role in the kingdom was over? He had denied Christ not once, not twice, but three times. And now what does he do? He goes back to fishing back to the thing he left behind when he followed Jesus. It makes perfect sense. So now here he is, being the fisherman. And Jesus asked him, asked him, Simon, do you love me more than these? So Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, 
tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Now, Jesus knew Peter's heart. He knew he loved him. So why was he asking that question over and over again? Do you love me? I think when Peter reflected back over that conversation, he must have realized what Jesus was doing. Three times he denied knowing him. Now Jesus gave him three chances to correct the wrong, three acknowledgments, three chances to set the record straight without one word about his failure. Jesus reinstates Peter. You're forgiven. Now go and shepherd others as I have shepherded you. Tend my sheep. Did Peter do it? Well, he goes on to become the leading apostle after Jesus' ascension. We find him leading the disciples in Acts 1.15 when they want to um, fill the spot that Judas left vacant when he committed suicide. And so uh, Peter is leading the disciples in that day. And then after being filled with the Holy Spirit in the day of Pentecost, they all go out into the streets and who spearheads the whole thing and preaches to the crowd? Peter. 5,000 people believed in Christ that day. It's Peter who spearheads the first healings in the church in Acts chapter 3. And Peter and John are the first to be arrested for preaching Christ in the streets. I could keep going. There's lots of things about Peter. But you get the point. God used him regardless of his big failure. But I want to go a step farther. God didn't just use him in spite of his failure. God used him because of his failure. His failure was something that God used. Jesus had told Peter before even anything happened and they were still having the Last Supper, he said, you know, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I'm praying that once you come back that you will be used to strengthen the brethren. It was all in the plan. The story of Peter's denial is in every single gospel which is rather curious because none of the writers of the Gospels were there when it happened. So how did they know the story? I think Peter told it loud and clear to anyone who would listen. He told about his failure and then told about the redemption that God offered in spite of it. I didn't deserve it he would tell them. But he saved me. I was without hope. He pulled me out of the muck and he set me down on solid rock. He loves me unconditionally no matter what I have done or I will do. I can't make him love me any more or any less because his love for me has always been complete. It's always been perfect. That was Peter's story. And that's what he told. So what about our story? Do we need to have our act together in order for God to use us? Can we go down a path of no return, once failed and never again to be useful to God? I don't think so, because we have a big God. It's what God does for all of us. 
He majors in taking the worst of circumstances, our worst failures, and breathes his life into them. He told Jeremiah, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Of course it's not. The content of our message is the hope of the gospel. We can't mess it up because it's never been been about what we do. It's what's been done for us. In fact, God chooses to use flawed people. He's not prone to the self-made man. He chooses the weak, the flawed, and the foolish. Paul wrote the Corinthians, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. He chooses us not because we can do something for him. He chooses to use our very faults, our weaknesses, and our failures to show himself to the world because he's showing us his redempted work in ours. It's God's goodness to those who believe that he wants to display, that he wants displayed. Paul wrote that after he was declaring himself the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy. He says, you know, I was the chief of sinners, and he said, God save me so that in me, the foremost of sinners, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. He shows that as we have been redeemed, that he wants to redeem others. So the result, results of his redemption, the love that overflows, grace that we extend because of what we've been given, as that all has been seen in our life, God is being revealed. It's not about being perfect, doing good works, being pious. It's about acknowledging what we have been given and then offering that same thing to others. And when people see what he did for us, they have hope for themselves. And this will shine like stars to those in a dark world. There's a wonderful book. I hope if you're a grandmother or a parent, you have this in your house. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a wonderful book. The the byline of her book is, Every Story Whispers His Name. And And of course, she meant the stories in the Bible Christ is foreshadowed in them. But I believe the same is true for us. Our lives are stories that whisper his name. In closing, I want to tell you about a friend of mine who went through quite a hard time. He was the associate pastor. It was not this church. It was a different church. Associate pastor in our church. And he uh, was a really great guy, beautiful wife, lovely children, just the kind of people you would want to be in front of your church. Well, he was counseling a woman in the church one late, one late night, and he fell, and they committed adultery. Uh, soon as he was, uh, you know, as soon as he left the place, he was just totally stricken by what he had just done. He confessed to his wife, he confessed to the pastor, um, and, and immediately, you know, repented from what had happened. But uh, in the meantime, we, the, the, the uh, leadership in the church decided that he needed to leave the position that he was in and uh, take time to have God heal his family and heal him. 
and um, and not be involved in ministry um, during that that period of time. Well, I'm, as we went through the meeting where they announced what had happened, and it was done very well with great um, compassion on the part of the elders, and people responded with great compassion too. But you know what people really worried about? Is that it then? Is he done? He blew it. So does that mean he's not going to qualify again for ministry? Because he was a really great pastor. And does that mean he's that, you know, he can never be trusted to be the head of a church again? I mean, you know, what does that mean for him? Well, I'm happy to say that he and his wife stuck it out and they slowly rebuilt their marriage. And the husband really learned, the guy really learned on a new level what grace and redemption was all about. Uh, we met him a few years later at a wedding, and uh, my husband, you know, asked him, you know, did, did we do the right things as elders? Did we, you know, did, tell, tell us about your experience since you left our church? And he said, you know, he said, I'm, I'm sorry that I did it, of course. He said, and I wouldn't choose to do it again, but I can tell you that God used that to make my marriage so much stronger and so much richer and fuller. And I understand God's grace and redemption in a way I never had before. He said, I'm not sorry we went through that because it reduced, produced such great fruit. And you know what he does now? He works in a prison ministry. And he openly shares his story, which is why I feel uh, free to share it with you today. And he gives men and women who are doing time for blowing it themselves. And he reveals a God of mercy and grace and how God acted in his life. And what does it do to see a man who fell so, from so far and yet here he is back in ministry? It gives them hope. If God could do that for them, they could do it for me. It's a powerful testimony. We reveal God in being and being real about our weaknesses and failures because they're a wonderful backdrop to his goodness, to our revelation about God. He took us just as we were with those frailties and he breathed life and power into us. It's our ongoing story of experiencing his grace, his mercy, and his forgiveness that ultimately reveals him to the world. So go and tell your story. Be a witness to the saving power of Jesus. And you will fulfill your purpose by revealing God's glory to the world. Let's pray. God, I thank you that our story is not about us. It's not how perfect we are. It's not how well we can uh, preach your word. Instead, our story is about the mess that we are and that you, your redemption gave us hope and a place in this world. We thank you, Lord, for that story. Help us to spread it wide and far for people who are desperate for you. In Jesus we pray, amen.